Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A again. We're going ham with the Q&As, guys. And... I don't know about you, but I like the the new intro. Yeah. It's feeling good. I almost forgot it today, and I was like, oh, shit. As the beat was dropping, I was like, what did I say? What do I say? Life by design. Life by design. I want to beat that into your guys' heads because that's what you should be after. Um, but this is going to be Q&A. Uh, I don't know if this is number one, two, or three, but you're getting three Q&As this week. So um, 100%. Think about it. This Friday? Then the... The new uh, announcement. I don't know if they're going to hear yeah. this before, so I won't say. Yeah. And then Q and A, Q and A, Q and A, short ones. Okay. Am I wrong? Yeah. We so, don't have anything else, so we got to do another one. Because we only have three. No, we have. All right, you're right. <laughs> yep. We, ha- we have three already. This y- is going to be yes, number sir. four. There you go. No, 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 no. This would be number three. No, because we recorded two last week, dude. <laughs> okay. And you are literally putting one short one on Friday. This Friday. And then three more. And then we had another one from last week that we recorded. Gotcha. And then we have this one we just did. Gotcha. And then we have this one. Man, we're recording machines, people. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah dude, the other other week, I don't remember what it was. I think it was the week that I was like, we were like trying to like figure the schedule. And then I was like, bro, let's just not record. Like, we're so far ahead. Like yeah, we have was, so many episodes recorded. Like, right around Christmas. Yeah. It's like, let's just chill. Yeah. Like I got other stuff I want to do. Um but cool. the Q and A's are always the best. So, yeah, um, yeah we're gonna dive in. We got uh, three or four good questions today. Let's hear it. All right, Jump we in. got our first one is coming from G Nicole. It says, "Do you consider burnout sets to be junk volume at the end of a good hypertrophy session?" <laughs> hypertrophy. <laughs> uh, I've kind of I've, I've kind of talked about this a few times with like drop sets where we were talking about on a recent Q and A with uh, time under tension, right? Mm-hmm. And drop set increases time under tension, but it usually decreases volume or intensity. Intensity being a, from a load perspective because I can't continue to lift as much if I'm doing things like drop sets, right? So a burnout set can be defined as many things. So myo reps, for example, could be a burnout set. Myo reps are where you essentially do partials until you fail. So imagine I do like I'm on a seated cable row and I do 10 reps. I rack it, wait 15 seconds, do three reps. I don't even know if it's, I think it's technically three breaths. So it could be anywhere between five to 10 seconds. Three reps, drop it. Three reps, drop it. Mm. Three, And I literally do that until I can only get two or less. So myo reps are a way to extend that set, basically burn out. Now, the problem is if you do a myo rep set and then you still have two more sets that exercise, you're fucked. You're not going to be able to perform well. So they're reserved for the final set of an exercise. I would even suggest that they would be reserved for the final set of the final exercise for that muscle group. Okay. Meaning if I'm doing an upper body day and I've done like chest and shoulders and back and I'm going to get to my arms soon and my last superset is like, chest supported rows and push-ups and I'm only going to do arms after this 100% go for it because you don't have to go do another chest or back exercise you don't have to do another set of that superset it's your last set of that day on the, the last sets of those workout uh working muscle groups right mm-hmm. then you go to arms which is a different muscle group but 
and it's a secondary smaller muscle group at that. Um, so yeah, you have to kind of save it for that. Now, the other thing is, is like you have to, you have to kind of weigh out the pros and cons. The pros of burnout sets, in my opinion, A, fun, B, testing your capacity for failure. I think it teaches a lot of people, and this is something that it's not really talked about in the, the literature at all, but I don't even know if it could be demonstrated there. But essentially, my thought process is most people don't know how to train hard enough. When I say you got to go to an RPE of nine or just leave one rep in the tank or go to failure, they don't really know how to do that. Yeah. And the problem with that is that you can't ever reach a level of effort and intensity to maximize progress. So if you go to failure with these burnout sets, you might actually be able to test the waters and see where that line is. I want you to feel what it feels like. Because if you're doing sets of 10 with uh, for curls and you're using 25-pound dumbbells and then you go, all right, I'm going to do a burnout set and you do 25 reps, mm. next week you better fucking pick up the 30s. You know what I mean? Because you can clearly do more than what you've been doing. So it teaches you that you're not doing enough. So I think they're good every once in a while. Now... The only other pro is time. So drop sets and burnout sets can be more efficient because if I look at it like this, okay, I can do four sets of eight or I can do three sets of eight with one burnout set of however many, right? Or even like two sets of eight with one burnout set of 20. Okay. And that's the same volume as four sets of, or five sets of eight or four sets of eight or whatever. Well, the two sets of eight with one set of 20 might actually be faster because I'm doing less total sets. I do one quick burnout set and I move on. So I might shave off a minute on those exercises. And if I do that with every exercise, I shave off 10 to 20 minutes for my whole workout. Okay. That would be a benefit. The problem is, is if I do four sets eight or I take more time to get it done, I'm probably going to be able to lift heavier and do more volume, most likely, especially depending on the exercise. If you're doing like compound lifts and stuff like that. So if time isn't a factor, technically based on what we see in the research, you're going to be able to more easily optimize volume and intensity being load with taking your time, not doing drop sets, not doing burnouts, doing straight sets, taking long rest periods. That's it. Um, I think burnouts are, are advantageous to throw in every once in a while um, to see where that line of failure is. Not every week, not every exercise, but just every once in a while, like maybe once a block with some big exercise so you can see where you're at as far as how close you are to failure and gauge your RPE level. Um, and then I think they're good to throw in pretty regularly for curls, lateral raises, hip thrusts, hip abductions, things that are like minimally effective from a neurological fatigue perspective. So they're not going to just burn you out and fatigue you for your next session. Okay. But it's really fun. It's just fun getting a pump, challenge yourself, taking it to a burnout level. I think it's valuable from that sense because then you get excited about your training. You're yeah. amped up. It's like, especially when you're with workout partners and they're like, you're, you're amping each other up and stuff. I, I enjoy that enough to where I think it's useful. Um, and then just the education perspective. Yeah, just teaching yourself yeah. how much you can do. But this is the problem with, with science, honestly. I mean, science is great. I love it. Obviously, we promote it constantly. We have a researcher on staff. We constantly do every, everything evidence-based. But there's certain things that, and me and Brandon have talked about this, there's certain things in the evidence that technically outweigh stuff like this because of what evidence shows, you know what I mean? But the thing they can't take into consideration is motivation, fun, excitement, how well people are actually gauging the RP. You can't study that shit. So to say that drop sets or burnout sets are stupid because research shows it limits volume and volume's the king for hypertrophy, I think is looking at the glass half empty. I don't think it's seeing the full picture and I don't think it's using coaching, like real world coaching experience to tell you what the best method is. It's a combination of the two is the best route. Yeah. So do burnout sets have a place? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Totally. Yeah. That's how you use them. Yeah. Cool. 
All right. Uh, we will move on to the next one, which is coming from Sarah Crowhurst. Says, is there a way to boost leptin levels? I have a background of disordered eating, but some, but for some for eighteen months now, I have been following macros and eating regularly, never skipping meals. Yet, still have to rely on rely on uh, discipline to stop eating rather than due to feeling satisfied. My stomach can feel extremely full, yet still not satisfied. Increasing my fat intake seemed to help a, a little. A little bit, but not as much as I would like. I have hypothyroidism and terrible digestion, so I'm wondering if that is the cause. Do you have any tips or ideas, or is there any supplements that I could take? A massive thank you. Uh, she said that she doesn't get full. She eats a lot and doesn't get full. My stomach can can feel extremely full, but yet still not satisfied. Okay, so her hunger is still high even though her stomach's full. Um, all right, so a few things here. Number one, can you supplement leptin? Yes, technically you can, but no, you're not going to. It's very impractical, and you have to spend literally thousands and thousands of dollars per month to supplement leptin. Um, Leptin is a hormone that secretes itself in fat tissue. So it's a hunger hormone, and this is why people who are very overweight are very hungry is because – they, and you could think in like an ignorant mind would think this. I've thought this is like how you're that – how can you still be hungry? Like how can you not try to lose weight? Well, they can't help it to an extent. You know, you need a lot of self-discipline to lose 100 pounds. A lot. And you have to be able to ignore some of these signals that your body's sending you. One of them being leptin, which is a hunger hormone that tells you to keep fucking eating. But if we know that it's secreted in fat tissue, it means the more fat tissue you have on your body, the higher your leptin levels are. Mm. Right? So... The reason this would be advantageous for a, uh, a fat loss supplement is because, in theory, it is a hunger hormone that regulates calories. So with leptin going up, metabolism goes up. This is why if you look at somebody who is obese, is 300 and something pounds, they actually have an extremely fast metabolism. They have to. Otherwise, their body would not be able to function, and it would not be able to eat that much. Right, But as you lose weight, metabolic adaptation kicks in, metabolism lowers. One of the reasons metabolism lowers is because the smaller you are, the less uh, or the slower your metabolism would need to be to survive. Mm. Um, so that being said, like the theory was, and they did this in studies, and I think it was with rats. The, the book Hungry Brain is a great book for anybody out there who wants to read it. Um, Stephen Guy Annette, I think his name is. We've had him on the podcast mm. a while back. He's from his research at UW. Um, but they, I think they did it in rats. But the point is they inject them to try to get... It's called hungry rats? Hunger, no, uh, hungry brain. Oh. Uh, but in the study, I think they injected rats with yeah. leptin uh, to see if it would happen. Because technically, when we see a rise in leptin in humans, we see this fat loss effect and, and uh, metabolism increase. Um, but I, I want to say they didn't see that effect. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a reason why they didn't see it. I think there's just too many regulatory processes in the body that alter to make it not effective essentially otherwise even though it is thousands of dollars per month i'm sure it would be on the market somewhere rich people would buy it and use it um but it doesn't work like that um now one very very simplistic answer that might help you might not with your stomach being full but you not being satiated it might be eating too much high volume foods i see this all the time where people eat um i i talked about this recently where like after the holidays, choosing high-volume foods to try to help you while you're hungry and craving things. And this would be like eating extra crucifer- cruciferous vegetables, 
extra romaine lettuce and a big salad, things like that. But sometimes people overdo that and their stomach literally fills up so much. And remember that food pulls water, right? A lot. And food is like lettuce. Yeah, exactly. And the more, and your gut pulls in water and blood flow and stuff like that, because that's how it works, right? You like, this is why when we're active and training or we're scared or anything like that, and cortisol goes up, adrenaline goes up, we're in fight or flight mode, we get a better pump. You'll see more vascular in your arms because fight or flight mode says I have to run, punch, sprint, whatever, jump. So blood flow goes into the limbs, right? When you're in parasympathetic mode, it goes out of the limbs, goes into the, the torso and the core and the trunk. Relax. So you can relax. And that's why I call it rest and digest. Is the, it's fight or flight or rest and digest. Because when we have blood flow and attention there, our digestive system can actually do what it needs to do, which is digest. Mm-hmm. Point being is if you're filling up with too many of those foods, you're, you're going to be pulling in a lot of water, so you're going to be more bloated because food brings in water, attention to the gut brings in water for digestive purposes. And now we have all this volume in our gut, but we're not very satiated because our calories didn't get to where they need to be. Because remember, it's not just our gut that needs food. Calories also get sent to muscles in your brain and your tissue and your organs and everything. So I think you could be shooting yourself in the foot by just having too much voluminous foods. And I see this a lot with people who eat extremely clean and healthy, and they end up getting to a place where they're, they're under-consuming calories, they're over-consuming volume, so they look full and bloated, but they're not very satiated. Sometimes as well, it's, it's from lack of variety. You're getting a ton of the same foods, and you're filling yourself up, but you're not getting enough of the right vitamins and minerals, so your body is never satiated because it wants totally. the right vitamins and minerals that you're not actually getting. Um, that's a very simplistic look at it, but it could be something like that. Now, could it be th- the thyroid dysfunction of Hashimoto's? Potentially. You know, um, if you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, technically your thyroid will be slowing down and therefore your metabolism will be slowing down um, with it. So that's why for a lot of people who have thyroid dysfunction, it's a little bit more difficult to lose weight. Mm. And it's not because it's impossible. It's just because you need to create an even bigger deficit to actually cause weight loss because your maintenance calories is lower. So it could be a combo of those two things. But ultimately, there's really no like, there's no magic supplement to fix that. You know, I would recommend multivitamin, uh, fish oil, all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, what it comes down to is maximizing recovery and getting a really smart training program and then just figuring out your diet to be at the right macros, the right food selection to make sure you're not getting overly bloated with voluminous foods. Yeah. But totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's unfortunately no hack or trick here yeah work is very expensive yeah all right cool let's uh move on to the next one we got one coming from christine madrid says can you create says can you create intolerances on a meal plan yeah i think a a better way to say it would be can a meal plan create intolerances in you Mm. but it's hard to say because like there's really no evidence of this but I've told people this. I've seen it happen. I've seen people get intolerances to foods um, from overly overconsumption. You know, you eat extra lean ground turkey every fucking day for a year. Yeah. Yeah, it might happen. I've also ate eggs every day for years and never had anything happen. You know, minus a couple days a week maybe. But I, I think it depends. Big I don't. eggs guy. Huge eggs fan. Oh. Love them. Um, but I, I don't know. So it, it's hard to say. There's no there's no evidence I'm aware of that shows that you can actually create intolerances with food. Um, you can also create intolerances from not consuming foods enough. So this is why often when people um, 
cut out, they go like paleo or something, they cut out dairy and all those things, and then they go to have dairy or anything again, and they're like, oh, I just wrecked my stomach. And it's like, well, your body has to create specific enzymes to break down and digest specific nutrients. So if you eliminate those nutrients and foods out of your diet, your body stops producing those enzymes. So yeah, you're going to feel like shit when you eat it again. You know, people do this with gluten. They didn't touch gluten in for a year and they ate gluten. They're like, oh, fuck, I'm gluten intolerant. It's like, no, you just haven't had gluten in a year. So yeah. your body needs to start learning how to break it down again. Your body's smart. It'll do it most of the time. Some people are lactose intolerant or gluten intolerant, but it's not as common as people think. Um, and a lot of people just re- resort to it. Yeah. yeah. Or they, they want to point the finger. Yeah. They want to blame stuff. Um, there are people that are, obviously, though. Uh, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that you can grow intolerances from eating the same food too often. However, I've seen it happen to people. So I do think it's possible. I don't know the mechanisms behind it. I don't know the likelihood of it. Yeah, I've never experienced it, but I've watched people experience it. I've watched people get to a point where they literally can't consume a certain type of food without puking because... I'm assuming these people are clients. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, and you read stuff too. So like I, I've, I've heard it, I've seen it a little bit, um, but there's no evidence to support it. I've also seen a lot of people eat the same shit every day for months and months and months on end and never have any issues whatsoever. Yeah. So I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. All right, cool. We will move on here, guys. We have one coming from Nancy Caparelli says, what creatine form do you, uh, oh, I think she's just asking for suggestions. What creatine form to take and brand suggestions? Um, creatine has, there's like creatine monohydrate, which is what we would recommend. Uh, creatine uh, kinase, I think. No, no, creatine kinase is something in the body. Creatine uh, is alkaline. There's a bunch of different random kinds of creatine. Yeah, yeah. And for the most part, all of them that have been researched get outperformed by creatine monohydrate. Creatine monohydrate is the original, the most basic. It's also one of the cheapest supplements you can get, and it's one of the most well-researched supplements you can get. Um, Obviously, I recommend First Form. Um, They have a pure creatine, micronized creatine monohydrate, uh, so you know you're just getting creatine, which is nice. Five grams per serving, which is perfect. And again, it's cheap. So it's one of their cheapest supplements and it comes like two or three months of servings in the bottle. So it lasts forever. Uh, But creatine has been studied for, um, I mean, I don't know how many times. Creatine and caffeine are probably the two most well-researched performance supplements there are on the market, period. Mm -hmm. And they both are very effective. Creatine monohydrate is going to saturate the muscle with creatine, which is going to pull in water, um, it's going to also have a, a, a positive effect with the carbohydrates and sodium in there. And essentially, it's going to help you recover. It's going to help generate ATP because um, creatine phosphate in your body is going to produce ATP, uh, uh, adrenosine triphosphate. Um, and AD, ATP is uh, basically your energy system for anaerobic training. So anytime you're doing low rep strength work, you're doing sprints, you're being explosive, you're doing hard strength training, your body is needing to produce ATP in order to produce energy. Yeah. Whereas like an aerobic training, if you're going on a long run or anything like that, you're, it's an aerobic thing. So your body's using oxygen to help produce energy. Totally. ATP helps the other one. So creatine, taking creatine is going to help increase creatine kinase levels and creatine, uh, uh, phosphate levels in the body and those are going to influence the level of ATP. ATP is going to help generate energy to produce force in anaerobic training matters. Um, So you're going to have better energy. This is going to lead to a little bit more strength, a little bit more reps. I I always equivalent to like 
if I could do five reps with 200 pounds, if I was supplementing creatine for a while, I could probably do six reps with 200 pounds. It's a very mild thing, but it boosts everything up just an inch. Yeah. But if you boost everything up an inch over the course of months, you're, you're gaining feet of progress in, in those kind of terms. And it's also going to help recover the muscle from a hydration perspective. So when we consider health of a muscle um, and fluid in the muscle, it's going to help grow the muscle because of that, which is also going to help recover, which is going to help you do more volume, right? So it's kind of has this multifaceted thing where it's helping performance just a little bit. It's helping recovery just a little bit so that you can do more work in the gym, which is helping hypertrophy a little bit. It's hydrating the muscle, which helps it heal faster, which helps you do more as well. And then also there's studies that show a reduce in injury risk from creatine as well. Mm. There's a lot of benefits from it. Um, and creatine is super fucking cheap, which is great. There's also neuro, uh, neurological benefits as well. There's like studies showing like children's IQs are higher when supplementing creatine monohydrate, um, in grade school. There's studies that show it has effect on neuroplasticity. So, um, again, avoiding Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that, it helps increase that. So it's good for brain health as well. Um, there was another question that came in in the same batch asking if, uh, you know, you should use it during a fat loss phase. And the answer is yes. Like there's, you know, with creatine, you can take it year round. You really don't have to cycle off it. It's something I take, Literally 24-7. Like, it's just every single day, I take it. All day. All day. <laughs> every drink. Um, and I've been Not taking it Yeah, I've been taking it for a decade. Yeah. I mean, off and on, every day for a decade, really. And uh, it's one of the first supplements I've taken. But the fact that it's so cheap, you can you don't have to cycle off of it, and it's actually proven to be effective over and over again. I mean, it's literally like the best supplement you can take, Yeah, honestly, for performance. Um, so for fat loss purposes, if you're in the middle of a cut and you start supplementing creatine, just know that you're going to retain water because it pulls water into the muscle, which is a good thing. So if you're retaining water in the muscle, it's actually going to make you look leaner and fuller, fuller being your muscle belly is going to look fuller. It's going to hydrate your muscle. It's going to reduce injury risk, and it's going to help you maintain your volume intensity in the gym while in a cut. So it's actually really, really helpful during a deficit, but you have to be aware that it's going to cause a couple pounds of weight fluctuation at first. So if you're in the middle of a cut and you start taking it, you gain two pounds, don't fret. Like, yeah. Look in the mirror. If you look leaner, you're fine. Just keep going. You might go from, say, somebody's cutting, they're at 150 pounds, and they start taking creatine, they're at 152. That's fine. Now your 150 is just 152. Yeah. So when you go to 151, that's like you would have been at 149, you know, 150, 148, and you just go back to the trend. Totally. Um, obviously, during a gaining, maintaining, or strength building phase, it's going to be advantageous, you know. Um, Ideal time is post-workout, uh, but you can really take it anytime as long as it's in your bloodstream. You want your bloodstream to be saturated with it so your creatine levels are always elevated. That's the big key. Um, we have a huge blog on this too. We should link in the pot in the show notes of this podcast for you, but it's uh, on, the, on the website. It's basically like the most – outside of like one other by Eric Trexler, um, it's probably the most in-depth. And the only reason I say that is because I think his is probably like – most of their articles are like 30,000 words. It's just nuts how long they are. And there's so much information. I tried to like concise all the creatine research and be like, here's what you need to know. Mm. So it's still a big blog, um, but it's probably the most straightforward, well put together blog on the internet in my sure. opinion. Obviously I'm biased, but I really think it's one of the best. Um, and you can find that on the website or in the show notes of this podcast. Um, and last but not least, obviously first form is, is what we recommend for you to get the creatine. Like I said, it's nice because they have creatine monohydrate, which is the big key here. Don't get any of the hyped up other weird brands people try to create around creatine. It's just, in my opinion, it's just trying to find new loopholes or trying to spike their supplement with something else to avoid cost of production and that it's not as effective. Yeah. 
First form is extremely effective because it's pure and all their products are, but their creatine monohydrate is micronized creatine monohydrate, which is very important for you to see. Five grams a day is the common serving for everybody. Um, if you're a really small female, you could probably take a little bit less, but most people are good with three to five grams a day. Um, and their, their uh, creatine is, it's like a, a good amount of servings in there. I think it's like two months worth. Um, but you can head over to firstform.com slash tailored coaching method and you can get free priority shipping on that type of creatine if you want to go over there and get it. Yep. It is 100 servings. 100 servings. Holy shit. Yep. Damn, it's over three months worth. Yep. If you're taking it every day. And that, oh, that's the other thing. Don't just take it. I get this question all the time. Don't just take it on workout days. Take it every single day. 24-7. One joke. And one scoop. 24-7. One <laughs> scoop. Um, yeah, one scoop. You can go to examine.com and you can see exactly because there's like a calculation of like this many grams per kilogram of body weight, like 0.5 grams per kilogram or some shit like that. Man, this, but I don't know. But They advertise don't use it if under age of 18. Oh, yeah. Most supplements. I guarantee all their supplements are that. Oh. I would do that too. Yeah. got to be safe. But there's been multiple research studies on kids. One of them was in middle schoolers, and it showed an increase in test scores from taking creatine. Touche. Really cool. But I still tell people, people, I get people ask me, clients stuff that are like, should my son take them? I'm like, nah. I'm not going to tell you that. Go do your research. Here's some cool articles. Yeah. Make your own decision. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody under 18, I don't, I'm good. Yeah. Should we do one more? Yeah. All right. We got uh, one more here. It's coming from Melissa RZ. Melissa's. Does weight dropping during a deload week mean that I'm overtraining on regular weeks? Uh, It could potentially mean that. So there's a few reasons why I would think this. Um, number one, we have to remember that strength training creates micro tears in the muscle tissues and fibers. If it's creating micro tears in the muscle tissues and fibers, what that also means is it's, uh, it's causing inflammation in the muscle tissues and fibers. This is why I see people's weight fluctuate when they have a hard leg day, right? Or if we do a new block, like we start this week is block one and you have a new session you're not used to you're probably going to see the scale go up a little bit because there's an inflammatory response of your muscle tissue. You get inflamed. Your, your muscles bring in water, blood flow, all that kind of stuff, and you hold a little bit of water, that sends the scale up. So it could just be that. You know, like uh, you're, when you're training really, really hard, you're constantly having a little bit of inflammation at the muscular level, the tissue, and when you go to deload and you lower volume and you don't do as much and you have less micro tears to the tissue and muscle fiber, you have less water retention and therefore your weight drops. The other thing could be is cortisol. So when we train really hard, we do uh, increase cortisol, which isn't a bad thing because cortisol is associated with fight or flight and adrenaline, the the sympathetic nervous system uh, mode, which is beneficial for power and strength. Um... So we don't want to blunt that during training or anything, but if, if our body isn't good about bringing it back down, we could be like just riding this cortisol wave and constantly have elevated cortisol levels. And then when we go into a deload week, the same thing happens with the diet break. Yeah. Diet break, calories increase, it brings cortisol down. Deload week, we drop training volume, that brings cortisol down. Either way, cortisol, the stress hormone itself, retains water. So if we reduce cortisol by taking a deload and we reduce water retention, we're going to drop weight during a deload week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the other thing I could think of is, I mean, those are the two biggest things. The only other thing would be, yeah, you're overtraining. 
but if you were overtraining, it would be because of this cortisol thing. So if you're overtraining, your body is in sympathetic mode too often and it's not in parasympathetic mode often enough. And what this is causing is uh, training levels and intensity and in, in the sympathetic nervous system tone to be elevated too often and parasympathetic to not be, and therefore you're overtrained. But overtraining is just going to increase cortisol and inflammation. So both of those things I talked about, which both could be problems, but they're also not like like exclusively bad. Both of them are fine too. Like the inflammation thing, it's supposed to happen. If you have inflammation at the, yeah, it does. And it's supposed to, because if you have inflammation, it means that you're training really hard. If you're training really hard, the inflammation is the process of it repairing itself, right? This is why like with squat university, we talked about this with knee surgery, not doing the rice method. Why? Because that inflammation isn't a bad thing. It's why it's telling you something, it's telling you something and it's trying to heal itself, right? This is also why, um, it's somewhat, it's a similar concept, but different thing. It's not inflammation, but a fever, a fever is your body getting rid of the, the illness that it has, right? The virus that it's going through. So if you have a fever, it's actually a good thing. So when we take medicine to blunt fever, it's not to fix what we're going through. It's to, uh, lower the symptoms we're experiencing with what we're going through. But sometimes this is why they say, let the fever run its course. The fever has to run its course. So they actually say like things like Dayquil and Iquil and stuff can actually extend the period of time that you're sick for. It just makes it less like suffering, really. More tolerable. There's a word. Yeah, yep. more tolerable because you're not, you don't have a fever, which means you're not having cold sweats. You don't feel like shit. feel bad, but it might linger. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, do you go through it? And there's obviously a dangerous level of fevers too, yeah. you know, especially with babies and kids. Like we've experienced that with Blakely and it's like, now, blunt the fever, get her to the hospital because it's more like, I don't care if this takes seven days. Yeah. That kind of fever is deadly. Yeah. Um, but the concept itself is the same as the inflammation thing. So that's not a bad thing. We want inflammation in muscle because that's how it breaks down, repairs, grows because of the breakdown and in inflammation. Cortisol, we want because cortisol, we want a healthy balance of cortisol because cortisol wakes us up in the morning. Cortisol goes up and that's what literally gets us out of bed. So a lot of people with dysfunctional cortisol levels, they have a really tough time waking up in the morning and they can't fucking sleep at night. You call it tired and wired. You wake up groggy. You can barely get up. You got to hit snooze five times. You're tired throughout the day. And then you go to lay in bed and you can't fall asleep. Yeah. Because your cortisol levels are flipped around. They're high in the wrong uh, times and they're low in the, the wrong times. Yeah. Um, or so, just throw some cold water on your face in the morning. And dude, you know why that works and why cold showers work in the morning is because cold therapy, that ice cold exposure increases cortisol and increases adrenaline and it kicks on your central nervous system. So for like, if anybody's trying to kick caffeine, but they're tired in the morning, fucking cold shower, it'll wake you up because it sends cortisol and adrenaline up. Yeah. It's literally one of the reasons no, why I, I, I definitely agree. I don't know if I'm taking a whole cold shower, but like at least like when you turn that knob on, it's already cold. The pipes have to warm up. Yeah. So it's like 15, 20 seconds. Uh, I wait. I turn it on and wait. I don't even get in there until it's hot. Well, then you're not blunting your cortisol. I know. <laughs> I, I, I fucking hate cold showers. <laughs> I hate cortisol. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing no. is, is, so I, I don't take showers in the morning because it, it's right next to our mattress bedroom. So it wakes Blake, uh, Shannon up or the other showers right next to Blake's room. So it wakes her up. Okay. So I take them at night. So if I took a cold shower at night. You take a shower in the morning? I take them at, uh, when I get home from the gym. Damn. And then I sleep, wake up, come here, and then I take a shower when I get home. But the problem is, is like if I took a cold shower, shower at night, which I did for the Taylor Life Challenge. Yeah. It, it becomes a problem because the cold shower elevates cortisol levels. So it's like, all right, I'm ready for bed. Let me take a cold shower and get amped up. Yeah. 
Like, that doesn't work, yeah. you know? The only way to get away with it at night is if, if you do the cold and then you immediately turn it to really hot yeah. and then bundle up because yeah. that contrast has the opposite effect. Yeah, and you can get sicker with a cold shower at night. But yeah. a hot shower at night is what you should do. Oh, yeah, that actually improves sleep. Yeah, absolutely. It is the fucking complete opposite. Yep. It lowers, of course, yeah. all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that would be my guess of why you lost some weight during D-Load. Totally. You know, so um, probably cortisol or inflammation. Cool. All right, good questions again. Yeah, uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. As always, guys, we're trying to grow the show and get it to more people, so please do us a huge favor and share this with a friend and share it on Instagram by taking a screenshot of the show, posting it on your story, and tagging me at Cody McBroom so I can thank you and share it on my story as well. Catch you next time.